When it comes to perspective, I think one of the greatest things about any good critique or any great collaborator is that they can help you see a blind spot. Mm -hmm. So whether that person is fresh out of design school or a child or, or one of the most senior designers in the world, that person can say something or do something that can identify a blind spot you might have had, not because you aren't competent or great, but because perhaps you might have not seen it. And that's such a great gift to get from someone to say, oh, I didn't have my light pointed at that part of the problem. And as a result, I just chanced over it. Hi, everyone. I'm Fabio, and welcome to another episode of Shaping Chaos. Today, I'm thrilled to have Alicia Natford, uh, the design researcher for Novo Nordisk, uh, where he directs design and research innovation and innovation initiatives for the healthcare industry. He is a former designer of uh, frog design, for example. He worked for Apple, he worked at Properland, and with clients like uh, Coca-Cola. And Alishan, the question I have for you today is about chaos. It's a question that I've been thinking a lot about, and um, I would like to understand a little bit more of how you manage chaos in a, a situations like you find out at Novo Nordisk or uh, chaos in other projects that you might have encountered in, uh, in your life and your experience. So the question is, is there a time that you found yourself in a especially spe chaotic situation in a design research project? And how did you manage or respond to that situation? Okay. I can remember a specific story that took place years ago before I joined uh, Nova Nordisk, where I did face a, a very chaotic situation. To some extent, I think uh, no matter who encountered it, they would have encountered the same chaos. It was a very demanding project that, that had a very short timeline and required mm -hmm. information from six different countries, each which spoke their own language in order to make a strategy for what was essentially going to be a new generation of products from a company. Mm -hmm. And it was very demanding for many reasons and very chaotic for many reasons. It was shorter than it was planned. The people who had originally performed the research weren't always available because they were sick. Uh, the direction had changed. There was ambiguity about specific parts of the development process. All of this made it hard to really uh, pin anything down and say, mm -hmm. this is clearly what we're trying to understand or pursue. And things were consistently moving. To some extent, I actually am reminded of how chaos, you know, when you think of it on a, on a molecular level, is, is entropy. Mm -hmm. Things are just moving in, yeah. in random directions and in, in ways that you can't really control. And part of that's just nature doing what it does. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't really control that chaos so much as we can just survive it and hopefully manage it well enough that we get through. We mm -hmm. did on that project. We, we handled the circumstances the best we could, but we were exhausted and we were uh, overwhelmed at times, but we eventually finished on time. And while all the while just hoping that we were 
being as clear and as accountable to what we were being asked to do as possible. Yeah. But it was certainly a stressful one, and it left a uh, a very interesting story in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> you you talked about uh, communication and that how does that become chaotic as entropy starts uh, kicking in? Um, yeah. Did you have any kind of tools or any kind of um, exercises that you went through to actually manage that entropy? Because entropy is something that it's common to find in, in business, and especially like when you have very complex uh, projects like the ones that yeah. you do. Communication can, can take so many different formats. It could be a visual communication in the way that you're presenting or sketching or sharing. And of course, it could be verbal communication, the, the technology you're using, whether that's email or text or phone or just being in front of a person can, of course, change. I mean, that's something right now when we're recording this presentation, we're still experiencing a world that's affected dramatically by, yeah. by the, by the COVID-19 phenomenon, or not even phenomenon, tragedy. And through all of that, I think we're, we're sort of reimagining what it was to communicate the way we did beforehand or have the efficiency that we had beforehand, but in these new mediums and these new situations. When it comes to communication, I think some of the ways that, to answer your question, I, I've sort of developed my skill set has mm -hmm. partially been through trial and error on a very short-term uh, period of time. And by that, I mean uh, trying out a way of communicating with perhaps a partner, a vendor, a client, a colleague. And if it doesn't seem to be working, being okay looking at myself and saying, oh, this didn't seem to fly. Let's try an alternative version. In the same way that in design, we, we, we iterate. The same mm -hmm. thing could be said for the way in which we communicate. Um, hopefully, they're just very... Uh, thoughtful experiments that when we discover this isn't working the way we thought, how do we change it so that it does? Uh, I've actually been really excited when I also have colleagues and vendors and partners and clients who feel the same way because it's it's so rare to to perfect it exactly the first time. Yeah. But instead, we we feel each other out. We listen to how this person communicates the problem. We observe how this person frames an opportunity or discusses the politics in an organization. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's essentially also a form of design research. We're understanding our stakeholders and our collaborators so that when we eventually start speaking, hopefully we have unified the terminology and unified the, the style enough that we're actually making progress. And oh, and even, even better, we start playing off of each other mm -hmm. and start figuring out how to see things through another person's eyes through that specific vocabulary. And as a result, we're we're learning from each other and, and hopefully that's also creating wisdom and insight. Uh, otherwise, may, why would the communication even need to happen? Yeah. One of the things that um, when something like this happened with me as well yeah. is that people sometimes um, or often um, struggle to, to tell uh, someone that they are vulnerable or they don't have enough information or they don't um, feel comfortable sharing a specific idea that they have. Uh, yeah. Does that contribute to the idea of the, the chaos that you have in design research, for example? I think vulnerability as a topic is, mm -hmm. is certainly something that I've encountered personally. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and also in, in collaborations, I think I've also 
observed that sometimes in some of the people that I might have encountered over my entire career, I, I think it's a natural human condition mm -hmm. uh, to have it. What I'm, I can only really play my role in creating an environment where that can be safely experienced and uh, acted upon. Uh, I would, and by that I, I, I mean, I try to demonstrate moments when I'm vulnerable uh, by showing how I react to those moments. So for example, when I say something that when I, for example, I, if I'm having a meeting and I'm trying to describe something and I say something in a way and I realize halfway through my description, this isn't as clear as I hoped for, Mm -hmm. I try at least to to acknowledge it publicly to sort of say, you know what, I think I need to change this metaphor. <laughs> I need to change the way that I'm talking about this to say it's completely safe to do it rather yeah. than just stay in the momentum of the conversation and say, well, if I keep talking, I'll eventually get it. <laughs> uh, and I can hopefully communicate that in a way that that shows that this is just a part of the thinking process. Oh. Or sometimes I'll even set up conversations by saying, you know, I don't think I have clarity on this point yet. So I'm going to try to talk around it. Or I don't really feel like I can understand this, this specific objective of this project yet. So I'm just going to write down some things. Maybe you can help me see those things through your eyes. And then together, we see something together that hap happens to crystallize it between the two of us. Uh, I, I, to that extent, I think insight is, is one of those things where, uh, or I shouldn't say insight, when it comes to perspective, I think one of the greatest things about any good critique or any great collaborator is that they can help you see a blind spot. Mm -hmm. So whether that person is fresh out of design school or a child or, or one of the most senior designers in the world, that person can say something or do something that can identify a blind spot you might have had, not because you aren't competent or great but because perhaps you might have not seen it. And that's such a great gift to get from someone to say, oh, I didn't have my light pointed at that part of the problem. And as a result, I just chanced over it. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's, it can be lovely. Instead, it's, I think sometimes it gets perceived as a, uh, as a, I don't want to reveal the fact that I wasn't mm. pointing my light there. But like any light that comes out of any lamp, it can't point out everything. You can't illuminate everything. You have to kind of choose at any given time. And it's every one of us is going to have moments where, oh, I didn't see that. The mm -hmm. best thing, at least I believe one can do in that moment is embrace that and then say, all right, I can, I can consider that now. How, I mean, I'm curious to understand how or when does design research becomes chaotic and what makes it so chaotic sometimes? Sure. Uh, so for the the work I've been doing for most of my career, the area in which we were researching involved uh, user experience or a problem faced by an end user, an individual that sometimes was so complex or so wicked that it was hard to entirely figure out what the root cause was or even what a solution could be because it might have to do with a complex chronic disease like what I study now or mm -hmm. In previous generations, how a person, say, engages a uh, interactive entertainment system that they may have never engaged ever before mm -hmm. and has controls and capabilities and functions that have never even existed before. So it's hard to kind of focus 
if you will, the, the, the microscope on what you're studying. Sometimes you don't even know, like, do I need a microscope to study this? Or do I need to hold it in my hands to feel it? Mm-hmm. Because it might be more of a, of a different form of a problem. So here's another example of where, for example, as I'm trying to explain the complexity of this chaos, I even sense, I'm like, you know what? This is a hard topic to talk about. So I, I in this case, I hopefully verbalize, ah, oh, I, I, it's hard to kind of immediately say it. And then as a listener, hopefully the person goes, okay, this is a person trying to navigate uh, a topic that's difficult. Yeah, so I'm, I, curious. I, yeah I'm curious yeah. to understand why you said that. And I'm curious to understand what makes that so hard? Is it what the language? It... Is it just the complexity of the subject? I think it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I were to oversimplify it, a lot of the work that uh, I find myself doing is trying to understand why people behave the way they do or okay. feel the way they do so that we can hopefully encourage a behavior or a feeling, feeling that's more in alignment with a vision or an ambition that could hopefully help them. And one of the reasons I like uh, working in the space of chronic diseases is very often we're studying how to encourage healthier behaviors or attitudes that are more self-supportive. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of different reasons why someone may or may not uh, take a medication or exercise. There's a lot of reasons why someone may or may not struggle with addiction uh, or a variety of other areas. So when someone says, how do we, how do we solve X? And X is something like a complex disease that it, it's not a single barrier that's creating uh, a problem. It's not a single bullet that will, a silver bullet that will solve this matter. It's, it's, it's something much, much more complex. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like someone saying, can you describe to me what society is, but do it in a way that I could build my own on another <laughs> planet. And you're like, oh my, I can give you a philosophical answer. I can give you a political answer. I can give you a mathematic answer or a statistical yeah. answer. Like, but in this case, I, I, I still go back to studying the behaviors and the attitudes that a group of people uh, may have in order to help encourage different ones, usually through some sort of product or service or an enhancement of a product or service mm-hmm. uh, that's being done. And the chaos comes in in really figuring out what what behavior or attitude are you feeling, or in some cases, not even knowing what you're looking for yet, just knowing there's these people. Uh, there's a group of individuals who engage this product. We don't know exactly why they're behaving this way or even what we should be observing yet. But by mm-hmm. looking and observing, we start to figure out patterns just like any other scientist and then say, based on these patterns, we can come to certain conclusions. So there's no uh, set of processes and or um, tools that you use on a daily basis that you can use from one project to another. Every single oh, project is different or... I think there are certainly some tools. I, one, one can look at it, at least one of the ways that I like to look at it, is as a science. Mm-hmm. And if someone said, we're, we're going to understand why uh, water freezes into ice, uh, a chemist could look at that from a very specific way. A physicist can look at it from a very specific way. And physicists have tools and, and chemists have tools. Mm-hmm. You can look at the thermodynamics of the H2O molecule. In this case, if I'm studying how a person physically interacts with a, with a medical device, I might use a different form of observational research than if I was watching how they interact with a, uh, an application. If I was trying to understand why they felt fear in a very specific 
contexts, such as when they're alone, I might have an interview with them in a different location than if I was just trying to understand why they buy the things they buy at a pharmacy, where I might have that interview in a pharmacy. So there's certain tools you might use, but the exact way in which you use them is always different. You might always use some tool from your toolbox to put up a, uh, to put up a screw in a wall, but the wall may be different and the angle in which you put it in may be different based on the wall and the length of the screw may be different based on yeah. the wall. What, what kind of chaos have you noticed in the healthcare industry or healthcare design projects? That you sound like lately. <laughs> wow, what an interesting time to ask that question. <laughs> I wonder if there's. I, I'm tra I'm challenging myself right now to see whether or not this hypothesis or maybe this assumption I have is true. But I really consistently come back to the belief that there's never just one thing that is the exclusive cause of a phenomenon in the healthcare industry. That's my, mm -hmm. at least, personal hypothesis. Uh, and in that sense, for example, if you were to trace the pathology of an individual's specific uh, life with a disease or a condition or something like the way in which, if we were to look at a, a contemporary example, mm -hmm. such as the virus, which is currently impacting so many of us, uh, there's never just one way it spreads, or there's never just one way in which someone feels about having such a disease, or there's never just one thing that is causing it to spread more or less. It's it's very often a series of social conditions, mm -hmm. of, of uh, geographic conditions, of cultural conditions that are all influencing how people behave and act, and act which makes it that much harder to, to study. Because if you said, I want to study how this disease spreads from a cultural standpoint, you could do that. And then you could have a separate professional look at it exclusively from a statistical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And then you could have a separate individual study it differently. And you could come up with really compelling but different answers. Mm -hmm. The chaos comes in trying to figure out how do these blend together? Mm -hmm. And that's where interpretation comes in. You start to mm -hmm. build connections between these different findings. It's also where the fun part comes in and the, the rewarding part. Because there isn't always a one-to-one answer that connects why one specific uh, culture may be observed to be performing behaviors in a certain way when you compare it against a statistical model or another model. Mm -hmm. So there's a certain amount of uh, inference uh, and abductive reasoning, which is a phrase that uh, John Coco popularized years ago, whereby you look at multiple insights, multiple data sets and see what could the connection be here and if we could figure out that connection, what could we do to improve something or to make it better for these individuals? Uh, that's where I, the little bit of, or not a little bit, that's where mm -hmm. a lot of the cre creative process finds itself for, for some of my fellow design researchers in connecting those insights and seeing new opportunities when you finally actually connect them. Mm -hmm. uh, that's and very the, interesting. The, the interesting thing is I also find myself doing it in my own life and pointing it at myself where I'll notice, you know, I'm feeling a certain way in the morning when I wake up and I have these feelings during the day and what I'm eating the night before influences it. Just like any other scientist, I start studying what could these connections be and how might I change certain behaviors to create different feelings. And, and if you study it long enough, you start to see like, oh, there's a lot of 
connections to things like cognitive behavior therapy and design research. There's a lot of connections uh, between systems thinking and forms of, of interaction design. And that's, again, chaotic, <laughs> but a beautiful chaos. Yeah, that, that just reminds me of a phrase that a lot of people use, but I never understood very well, which is innovation happens at the e edge or creativity happens at the edge. Is, is the edge like the, the blending or the merge between disciplines? That's what it seems. It, it could be. I mean, when I, when I hear the phrase you just mentioned, uh -huh. part of me can't help but to think about what I was doing. I think it'll, it's around 11.30 last night. I've been working on uh, this, uh, this uh, essentially poster that I'm designing that's also partially an infographic. And it's quite easily the, the 15th version of this poster that I've made. And for four or five of them beforehand, they were all small revisions of the previous generation. And then this one just took a different direction mm -hmm. and something clicked. And it frustrates me so much that I couldn't get to that on my third revision, you know? But at the same time, I also know that this process took me to a point to... Uh, to an edge. And then by reaching that point, it pushed me over from one way of communicating this idea to another. And by pushing me over into that point, it, something changed in, in, in the poster itself in the communication itself. Uh, and I, I wish I could point back to it and say, <laughs> oh, that was the moment. But I have to believe, at least I shouldn't say I have to, I, I believe that the process of iteration is a way of at least for me, mentally organizing my thoughts, the chaos of my ideas, until eventually I organize them in a way that goes, wait, that, that, that could work. Yeah. That could work. But it took me 15 times of organizing it. Uh, so, but I'm impatient at times. <laughs> I wanted to happen in the third one. Yeah. The good thing. And I, always, I also think maybe, well, when, as I get older, it'll go from 15 iterations to 12 iterations. And that's, <laughs> That's not always the case. In some cases it is, but when it comes to a brand new problem, the brand new problems, at least for me, always take time and thinking and try, oh, that didn't work. Try, oh, no, that didn't work. Try, yeah. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it seems that one of the things that um, people need to become very good at, especially because of the context of what's going on and the context of the complexity of the things that we work on nowadays, um, it seems that it's very, for people like you that have to manage other people and have to uh, direct sometimes uh, a specific kind of innovation or um, help people realize what's, what's best for a product or a project or a service, I'm, I'm kind of interested to understand uh, what kind of um, advice do you give to anyone or a manager that is trying to um, hire someone for a team like the one that you manage, um, specifically when they need to be very good at handling and managing this kind of chaotic situation? There, there's, there's several thoughts and questions that come to mind there. Uh, I think as you were speaking, one of the things that I'm reminded of is one of my favorite quotes from uh, a former professor and one of the and the founder of the design MBA program at the California College of Arts, Nathan Chedroff, 
And he he said in a, in a great video that you can find online during uh, that the definition of leadership needs to kind of be revisited. And he explained that quite simply, at least in my opinion, uh, leadership is articulating a vision that other people want to follow. Mm-hmm. That's it, which is why some leaders can lead up, some leaders can lead down, some leaders can lead their peers. But when you're able to articulate that vision or visualize that vision in a way that compels others to to act and pursue it, you're performing an act of leadership. And I can't help but think that in something like a chaotic situation, you may not necessarily be tapped to be the leader of a project mm-hmm. or the leader of a program. Uh, but if you're able to, in the, in the midst of a chaotic situation, articulate a vision for how to at least move through the chaos in a constructive way, that's hugely important because you may not ever stop the chaos, but you can, you can get through it in a, in a way that's hopefully constructive for you and for the team and for the people you're trying to serve if you're in the design field. So I look for the characteristics and the values of individuals who, who embody that. And that can come in all kinds of formats. There's not just one way, even though I say articulate, uh, <laughs> say you, there's lots of ways in which you could share that vision. I've seen individuals who have such great visual sketching skills that they're able to map out plans so quickly, mm-hmm. but they would struggle in presentation settings or people who can communicate exceptionally well in a, in a, in a meeting room, but may struggle to like make an infographic. Whatever it is that allows you to be able to communicate an idea or a path that other people can see value in, then that's, that's hugely important. But I also see elements on the personal side that I've also found to be especially important for uh, some of the most successful colleagues that I've encountered. Some of the character and integrity of a person's uh, attitude or or personality to me goes a long way. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. chaos can be so challenging in any workplace, in any problem, how you face that chaos, uh, both in terms of, for example, being okay with being vulnerable, but also having the integrity to act honorably during that chaos can mean so much for your colleagues who are also facing that. Mm-hmm. I, I can't help but think of, of remember situations where without, without being asked to do it, colleagues bringing food to others uh, and then participating to help them through their workload. There was nothing that they were going to necessarily gain or lose, but just the reaction of helping someone because they had an, an all-nighter where they were getting through a tough problem is to me a representation of this is how this person faces a challenge. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to think less of you if you didn't do that, but it also shows me that this person is acknowledging that there's another person going through a chaotic situation. (laughs) How might I help them? Uh, And that that personality doesn't always have to be an, oh, bring me food when it's difficult. Sometimes it could be as as, as simple as just Mm -hmm. giving someone the opportunity to spar on a topic that's being frustrating or just listening, being nearby, bringing a cup of coffee, that type of character, even though it seems like a small detail when it, when it's across one's entire professional attitude, I found to be extremely empowering and energizing, especially when it's tough, especially when it's tough. Yeah. I think, well, is that, uh, yeah, the last question I have is it just to, um, it's a curiosity. I've, Mm -hmm. since I started like doing a little bit of research on you, 
I realized mm-hmm. that your curiosity and your interest spans across a lot of different subjects from psychology, design, research. There's a lot of things that you are really interested. So I thought, what what is Alizan thinking and what are, what is Alizan uh, reading right now? Oh, <laughs> uh, I, let's see here, I'm 36. I had to do the math right now. For about, seven, I'm having to do math now. For about 17 years, I've collected poetry books. Oh, uh, and anytime I've moved, I, I carry, I have to get rid of some of them. And I'm rereading a lot of them. I'm actually rereading one of the, first books I got, which was a gift from my mother who recently passed away. And the reason I actually was reading that was he, uh, the, the person who wrote that book, his name is Billy Collins. He has this beautiful, but very approachable poetry. And by that, I mean, whether you are someone who adores poetry and the craft and the verse that can come with it and the mechanics of, of sentences, or you just want to hear something beautifully told, Anyone can come to it and I think feel something and resonate with so much of his work. And I think that as a a professional, I appreciate when someone can communicate something uh, that people can feel and understand, not necessarily because you oversimplified it, but because you happen to say it in that right way that it just moved someone and it's still authentic and it's still real. I, I have to kind of believe that that's just like a designer. It takes him multiple iterations <laughs> to figure out how do I make this so easy to read and absorb, but still communicate so much. Uh, so I, I hope that one day I can, I can have that same level of, of impact on people in the way that I communicate, but also make it so easy for people to access it without having to go to a dictionary. That's a great thought to end our conversation, Alice. And thank you very much for the time that you invested in this. Thank you, Flavia. It's always good to talk with you.